Hi, Dan. Hey, John. Welcome back to uh, to the States. Oh, it's nice to be home. Yeah, I bet it is. You were gone a long time. Uh, yeah, I've been gone a lot, and uh, I I'm happy to be back. I feel like I'm going to stay home for a while. It, it almost feels like a luxury trip. Well, how is Honolulu? Uh, wherever, Honolulu, wherever you, wherever you uh, went. I don't know. Honolulu was great the last time I was there, which was 1996. <laughs> um, no, I was on the uh, Joko cruise to Baja, California. California. Okay. Same. It's close. It's almost the same thing. Well, no, Baja, California is actually Mexico. But why is it called California then? Well, it was named California by uh, people from before the United States. Okay. Um, they were a they were a, a hardy people, a traveling band, and they 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 chose this name, California. Uh, the oldest town in Baja is there on the Baja. Peninsula, which I think you would expect, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The oldest town in Baja isn't going to be not on the Baja Peninsula. Yeah, just goes to re- goes to reason, goes to stand, stands to reason. Now I, I've noticed something, and I'm sure you came prepared with topics uh, for, oh, today, yeah. for the show. Oh, of course, I always do. Yeah, but I wanted to. There was something I wanted to sort of something I've noticed, and and I wanted to see if it was a worthy topic or not for the show today, and that is, as as you mentioned in the last episode, uh, you follow me on Instagram, I f- certainly follow you on Instagram, mm-hmm. and there and on Twitter, and your bio now, if you were to go to John Roderick on Instagram, his link in his bio, which is the only place that Instagram lets us link things. It's infuriating. It is a, li- yes, it's very infuriating that is a link to a Craigslist list of stuff you're selling. Yeah. Now, is did something happen on the cruise that inspired you to want to sell stuff? It was it our my our many conversations about how I'm purging things, or is this unrelated to all of the above? Well, it's interesting because, of course, people like me who do not regularly sell all their things, right? Um. It's it's easy to over time, especially to build up a, a feeling that your belongings are a kind of vault of wealth. Because having not normally sold things, I don't have any sense of the process of like this is for sale. Oh, hello, interested buyer. You uh you you find some flaws in my thing, you say. You think the price is too high? Well, interesting. Why don't we come to an accommodation? Right. Bill, you'll be here tomorrow to pick it up. Great. Bring the cash. That all seems like something that, you know, that happens just by rote after you make the all-powerful decision to put something for sale. And of course, that's not the case. Yeah. Selling things is hard and the value that you think is in an item is not value that's in the item. It is the item is only worth anything. It's only worth something to whoever wants it. And in the case of my purple, (laughs) purple seventies velvet Mm -hmm. and chrome waterbed frame, it turned out that even though I thought maybe it was worth $20,000 turned out that, so far, it's I've had a difficult time finding a buyer for it at any price. Yeah. 
And that surprises you. Well, because I'm, I'm always a buyer, never a seller. Mm. And so when I see things that I like, I go and say, I'll buy that. And the person goes, here's the price. And I go, Hmm, how about 5% less? And they mostly go fine. Uh, and I, and everybody feels fine. You know, like I kind of have a sense of how, what the price of things should be that I want. But I did not have any idea that, I mean, because I have, I mean, purple waterbed frame aside, which is a very unique item. And I know that somewhere in the United States right now, there is someone who wants that thing at any price. And they're very likely listening right now. It's hard to say. Probably are, probably someone is listening to this program in uh, Thessaloniki, Greece, and they are saying, if only I <laughs> yes. could get that bed here, my whole apartment would come together but it's like, that's a long way to ship this thing. It's not a, you know, it's not like a collector car. Uh, so anyway, uh, I got back from the cruise and yeah, I've been talking about, oh, I'm going to have these sales. I'm going to sell all my filth and stuff. And I get emails from people all the time. Like the moment, the moment that you put that stuff online, I will empty my bank account. And I'm like, oh, well, this is going to be a great day when I decide to start selling stuff. And then I sold that. Uh, put that waterbed up and I uh, got a lot of joke replies from people, but not a single interested part. Mm-hmm. But I got back from Mexico and this has always been part of like a house cleaning scheme, right? Or just a, like, I'm going to unburden myself of all of these uh, vests or whatever. But I got back from Mexico and there was a, uh, there was a conversation that I had with my accountant Wherein my accountant detailed uh, that because of this and that and these other things, that unprecedentedly in my life, for the first time, I owed the IRS money that I didn't have. Hmm. And I've never experienced this before. I've heard of this. People have talked about this. I hear about it all the time from people that are close to me. And uh, and it has always felt to me like, well... How do you get in? How do you get in Dutch with the IRS right. without you know not paying very close attention to what you're doing? Um, but the IRS does surprising things, and in this case, it was just the last year was was a like a um, a perfect storm, a, a, an unusual set of circumstances that not, that I did not see coming, and you know my accountant didn't see coming, and my accountant is my sister. Mm-hmm who lives in Ohio, who is a certified public accountant. And so we work hand in glove. It's not like she isn't also trying her darndest. So anyway, here's this bill. And I've had, so I've had bills from the IRS before, but I always had money to, uh, to pay them. Right. It was more or less what you expected. Yeah. Being, or, you being know, an or independent, even, an independent businessman, you said to yourself, I know that if I get this check for a thousand bucks, I better set aside a couple hundred of it to pay for the IRS. Well, because I file quarterly uh, as an independent business person, I always send the IRS every quarter. I send them a thousand or so bucks, a couple right. thousand bucks, just like, here you go, fellas. Like, don't worry about it. It's, you know, I'm on the up and up. Uh, anyway, so now I have this, I have a month here and I am suddenly looking at these assets, which I have always thought of as assets, mm-hmm. as 
as good as gold. These 1950s tuxedo jackets are, I mean, every one of them should be $250, and so therefore they are $250, right. and therefore people will be, I'll put this on Craigslist, and there will be people pounding on the door. Where are those tuxedo jackets? Uh, and now, so I'm, so I'm finding it very difficult. So yesterday, I was like, huh, well, one thing I know people are always clamoring for is vintage tube amplifiers. Yes, yes. And so I put some of those online, expecting to get, uh, a, so you know, a handy bunch of offers immediately from people I knew. I got one text from a good friend who said, "I currently have a Marshall Plexi, an Ampeg Reverber Rocket, a Fender a 62 Fender Bassman." Uh, you know, he went down the list of pretty much every kind of variation on the amp theme, you know, a matchless, a satellite. He had named 11 amps. But the one thing I don't have is a Vox AC30. And I was like, well, here's today's your lucky day. Mm -hmm. And then he was like, but I can't afford it. And I was like, well, sell like six of those dumb amps that you have. And by this, he's like, well, derp, derp. And he was giving me the same derp, derp that I would give somebody if I saw an amp that I wanted. Who will I derp, derp? Because nobody wants to pay, you know, what things are worth. Me, me least of all. And then I got an Instagram post or an Instagram comment from Ken Stringfellow saying that he was going to call the Seattle Police Department because my 1962 Bandmaster cabinet looked suspiciously like a bandmaster cabinet that had gone missing from his hoard. And Ken is like smog the dragon. Ken hoards instruments and music ephemera so smog, much. That oh, from, from, uh, from the, the dragon from the Hobbit uh, stories. That's right. From okay, the Hobbit okay. stories. It's the, it's the, it's the sand dragon from Dune. <laughs> uh, but you know, I need so, to watch Dune again. I'm going to add that to my list. I have never watched Dune. I am proud to say you got to watch it. It's so bizarre. I've never read the I've never read the book. And when I tried to watch Dune, and I saw that Sting was on there, and um, you're all, you were all in with Sting, right? Agent Cooper, and uh, I don't know. I just didn't. It just seemed like mm, no, that's for kids. You know, like The Hobbit. I never thought was for kids. I was always like, yes, absolutely. Dwarves no, no, I don't think dwarves. it was for kids. I don't think it was. Well, right. I was. I agreed. I, I, I think I read The Hobbit when I was first time, maybe when I was in seventh grade, and I said, "This is an accurate portrayal of history." Yeah, <laughs> and I am fully on board with this, like this, uh, this legend between men and the and the um, and the uh, eternal elves. I'm like one hundred percent. But then Dune was like, "Whoa, sandworms and the spice and a guy with a tube in his nose." And I said, "Nope." No dice. You got to pick a side, I always said. Until nerd culture came along and nerds said, you don't have to pick a side. You can like Star Trek and Star Wars. And I felt like that that was an abandonment of the of the creed, the core creed of nerddom, which is you absolutely pick a side. You know, it's not Marvel and DC. It's Marvel versus DC. But I... I uh, I don't want to get sidetracked from my long <sighs> description of my travails, Dan. My internet travails. Yeah, I know. 
so anyway, uh, the the fact that I am going to uh, sue Ken Stringfellow for for uh, libel, notwithstanding, I'm kind of up a tree now. Yeah, because I think I'm going to have to sell my RV. I'm going to have to like, it's and I good. think. I think in order to actually sell these things, I'm going to have to sell them for less than than they're worth, just in order to entice buyers. You know, you see that all the time. People are like, ah, fire sale, because you can't afford to sit there for a year until somebody like bumbles along and sees your dumb Craigslist ad. Right. Anyway, I'm so I'm going to put my Filson stuff up. I'm going to. Uh, I am ready to to talk seriously with you, to revisit the idea of having a fan uh, support mechanism for our program. Yeah, we should start I, something like that. Yeah, I'm going to start selling lapel pins. I'm going to go dance naked on the top of a flagpole. <laughs> like, <laughs> These would be the listener rewards, right? <laughs> that's right. I mean, you know, over the course of a year, I always put together a, a, an income by hook or by crook. I play shows, I do this, I do that. Some money comes in yeah. from from past exploits. New exploits arrive, but I do not have, like most people in the world, the ability to just conjure money. And you know, more uh, more money, more problems. In the uh, there's a song clear. all about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I think if I were in a position, if I were somebody who could conjure X number of dollars, I would probably also be someone who had more problems, right? Because I would have more money. And like I could go out tomorrow and play some pop-up show and generate some money. Sure. But it wouldn't, it wouldn't be enough. And the person that could generate enough money to solve my problem would have a larger tax bill than I have. It just goes to, it just stands to reason. It's another thing that stands to reason. <sighs> so this is going to be a, this is going to be a real lesson for me in the internet economy. And Dude, I mean, also, this really sucks. I just got to say yeah, as a, as a, it, as a fan of yours, it really just, sucks. It's just, it, I do not, I do not take it personally, first of all, because the IRS is impersonal. And I don't look back over the last year and dwell on some mistake I made because it's just, it was just a case of like, it really is a herp derp. You know, I was doing what I normally do. <laughs> that normally works. Right. Uh, and then one or two things, some small things changed and it, it, uh, there was a, and there's a gap. So it just feels like normal. It just feels like a normal human problem. And it, in my whole life has always felt normal that in April, some people are freaking out. I mean, earlier this year, I got a, a Facebook message from a friend of mine who's like, do you like my art? Would you like to buy my art? And I said, well, of course I love your art. I'm not sure what you, and I'm not sure if I was, if that if that's the existential crisis I was having, that <laughs> that I didn't have enough of your art. And they were like, well, I'm really selling some of my art, rock bottom prices. And we went back and forth like 10 times where I was like, I mean, 
like you're truly one of the great artists, I think, but, um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not exactly in the market. And it came out, they said, oh, I've just got hit with this terrible tax bill and I'm just trying to do anything I can. And I, you know, in, in that exchange, which was only a few months ago, I very much felt like, well, you know, you play for pretty fast and loose, Mr. Artist person. I happen to know that you, you know, shave the corners. Right. And it's not like I was saying you get what you deserve, but I, but I didn't feel like that's unfair. Right. You weren't outraged. Yeah. And so I'm not outraged now. I mean, my, my plight is not unique and really isn't even that sympathetic. Like if you have a, if you have an excess of sympathy and I'm not saying you specifically, but if anyone has an excess of sympathy, there are plenty of better places to expend it. Uh, I'm just a, I'm just a person that needs to make, needs to make some money real fast. And it's, I think I consider it both a challenge and a learning experience. How am I going to do it? I mean, I do have enough stuff that if I just kept throwing raw meat into the grinder, I would eventually have enough hamburger to make these burgers. Yeah. And I don't think it's going to result in me living in an empty house, uh, eating food out of a tin cup, right? There's a, there is a way like, do I have to, I mean, I think I have to sell my RV. I think I, you know, do I have to sell my piano? Probably not. It doesn't have to go that far. I hope but, not. But, but I do, I do feel like a lot of the things that I put tremendous value on are actually trinkets. I have not pursued a, I've not pursued like a collector mentality where the, where I only buy the nicest and most collectible items within a genre. I just buy the things that I see that I like. Oh, that one's shiny. You know, I'm like a, <laughs> I'm like a fucking crow. And so I have, you know, 25 globes. Probably three of them are worth some money, but the collection of globes itself isn't worth any money. And when you say, <laughs> when you say, this globe's worth $800. Uh, once again, you need to find that globe collector. It isn't worth $800 to, to Gary, you know? Right. It's not worth $800 to anyone else in my family who all look at me askance. So, I'm not, uh, I, I have no sympathy for myself. I just feel like sometimes you get a new challenge and... And, you know, you got to you got to meet that challenge. I have a bunch of first edition books that were written by my friends and all signed and endorsed to me. Yeah. But but I don't think that there's a it doesn't constitute a collection. Right. Well, it's OK. Like, so hang on a second. On the one hand, I think it sucks. Your situations, you know, I can sympathize with it. Yeah. But. You know, like there has to be a, a positive side to it. And the positive side to me is that you are going to be unloading stuff that you probably haven't been using and haven't needed. And you're going to you're going to lighten your load. You're going to unburden yourself a little bit. And there might be an opportunity for personal growth here. Mm -hmm. Personal you know? growth. I the problem with that, of course, is that 
the things that I have that are worth money are not necessarily the things that I need to clear out of my house. Mm-hmm. Right? Like yes. the, the, the project of unburdening myself of too much garbage and also making some money real fast. Like the way to make money real fast is to sell the things that I really prize. And I still would then be living in a house with 14 1950s tuxedo jackets, right, which sure. I don't need. And the, and the, the f- faulty premise is that I can do both things, get rid of, um, get rid of my Irish fisherman sweaters, get rid of my, uh, floor shime five nail, uh, handmade shoes, um, <laughs> heavily patinaed. Yeah. Um, I, are you going to put the Filson stuff up online? I, I am. Um, cause I'll tell you what, in my experience and I have, I've detailed with you and elsewhere how much I've sold on eBay recently, mm-hmm. the things that sell, like they will sell instantly and they will sell so close to what I paid for them that it's all, it's almost bizarre. Like is, is my Tom bin stuff. The Tom Bin bags and I suspect the Filson bags will go in the same way. But like if I paid $95 for like a Tom Bin backpack, it'll sell for like $89. And I don't understand how that's even a deal for anyone, but it that's what they that's what they want. It's great. I think your Filson stuff is going to sell like crazy. Well, um and this is the other this is the other part of it and the Filson stuff in particular. The other part of the uh, <laughs> of what feels to me like a maybe a delusion on my part is that particularly stuff like that, Filson things yeah. and whatnot, uh, that I have strongly identified with myself as right. a part of my uh, internet and public persona, that those things have taken on some undefinable additional value by virtue of having been my Filson thing from my collection, right? This is the, this is the ultimate conceit of minor celebrity, uh, which is that like Steve McQueen's, uh, Mercedes, like grocer or whatever, Steve McQueen's Ferrari 306 is worth Twice what a normal, like perfect condition for our. So you're thinking that your stuff, if this is something that was not only like John Roderick used it, but it's like part of the, his mystique, his um, his his personal identifiable brand is like, oh, did you see John? Yeah, and he had his Filson over his shoulder. Like, if you sell this, you actually it's like selling memorabilia. It's like it's like Michael Jackson's glove or something. Right, except, um. That is all very appealing to sit and think about when I'm staring out the window, completely untested and never sort of publicly declaimed, right? It's mm-hmm. in, it is not true that this garment has any additional value by virtue of having been uh, worn by me because I am the minorest of minor celebrities, even among my own fans who are like, I love that guy. But, you know, I'm really like a huge fan of uh, whoever that dingling is that – that uh, that does the TV shows, right? Or whatever. Like, you know, like, uh, there are probably people who would, 
uh, like to own a Filson thing that belonged to me, just as an item, uh, like yeah, that has a talismanic power. Like, <laughs> oh, here's yeah. a, I've listened to this program for uh, how many, however many episodes, and now I have one of these little weird things. This, this, this uh, ultimately very practical and vintage and beautiful garment that also was the garment of this of my friend. However, in my you know, in my lazy summer afternoon conceits where I think I have, uh, I am selling my things. Do you not understand? These are my garments, not just garments. They are, they are mine. You know, it's the, that I both, both that I feel like the, that my taste is only for the best of these. So the ones I'm selling are the best ones, even though they're a lot of them thrashed because I, I was wearing it while I was sleeping outside, but also, you know, like it's a, it's a kind of daydream to think that it is worth even a dollar more than just what the market will bear. Uh, and in our, you know, in our, in the world that I've lived in basically my whole life, the notion of of anti-ego, of anti-conceit is, is huge, hugely powerful. It has a tremendous hold over people. It's, and it's partly, it partly feels very like Andrew Jackson, uh, a kind of Appalachian humility that's threaded through the American oh my God. sense <laughs> of itself, right? That, uh -huh. that you don't, put on airs and you, and you, you would never, you would never promote yourself. It's crass. And that's, you know, that's, that's, a, that threads through, uh, certainly like punk rock and rock and roll that you, um, you know, you don't speak your own name in, in, uh, in anything other than sort of a kind of like, deeply humble fashion and mm -hmm. within the, within the Joko Cruz community, the, you know, the, the, the sensibility there is also sort of genuflecting and like, Oh no, no, I'm not worthy. No, I'm not worthy. Like the, the people on stage, Jonathan himself is so self-effacing as part of his onstage character. And this sort of combination of like the um, like not self denigration, but just a, a real sharp eye directed toward any um, any sort of egotism. I'm trying to describe it. You know, when, when, when Steve Albini made the, the third Nirvana record in utero, his public comments about it were, oh yeah, I mean, Nirvana, they're just sort of a middle of the road punk band, but I tried to, you know, I tried to make a good record, uh, with the tools that I had. And, you know, I don't, I'm not about overdubs and I'm not, I'm just like a regular guy here standing here in a boiler suit that says Steve over the pocket, just making albums like a work, working class working guy. 
And Nirvana wanted to make a record. I didn't ask them. They asked me. And like, you know, sure, fine, whatevs. And I mean, that's definitely like Albini's trip. But that reverberated through my whole world. Steve Albini didn't give a fuck. Mm -hmm. Like Nirvana was the biggest band. That was the biggest record he's ever going to make. It was, it probably made him rich. He's talking about this record and all the, all the big magazines, but his message to you is he doesn't even like it. He didn't even like them. He thinks that they're just, you know, they're not even really fine. They're just okay. And that version, um, never allowed for Steve Albini to say, the problem is it's a prison, right? Steve Albini can never say, yeah, I'm really proud of that record. It was like, you know, it was, um, I love those guys <laughs> because it's just not, it's just not on brand, you know? And so all by way of saying my persona has always been in, in, uh, has always been a challenge to that idea. Like on the Joko Cruise, very early on, I established myself as the kind of showboater, the like swinging for the fences, scene stealing, um, like comedy egotist, right? I'm here, uh, partly because it is so, because it stands in, in, stands in such bold relief. There are 15 people on stage going, oh, no, not me, not me. I'm just here as a, I'm just here, oops, accident, I just, oops. <laughs> and, and I would, you know, I would come out on the stages and say, that's right, I'm the greatest thing about this cruise. And it's just as much of a put on. Right. But it's way more fun, you know, like it's fun to be that boor, um, particularly when there's a, when there's a vacuum of people, there's a vacuum of anyone saying, ha ha, hooray. And I, and I, I'm suited for it. Right. I can, I can do that without, I can play that character without, uh, I mean, all you have to do is play any character with self-awareness, right? You can come out on stage and be like a, be a, a totally awful person. You, you can be, um, you know, Zach Galifianakis is, is self-aware and playing a person yes. that makes everyone incredibly uncomfortable. Like it's easy to do. And, and, and it is also a trap. You can walk out on stage and feel like here I am. And you're just not having fun doing it anymore, but it's always fun to bait, to bait people. And in the, in the Joko universe, like Jonathan and Paul and storm all recognize the character I'm playing and it, and it acquits with the, with the vibe. Right. So I walk out I'm the only person on the boat that would ever directly insult the host on the, on his own stage. And that's, you know, that's the job I play. That's who that's, fu that's fun for everybody. This year, as the Joko cruise got bigger and bigger, right? There are a lot of new people. There are a lot of new performers on there. And a lot of those performers are meticulous craftspeople. You know, they don't, maybe they're not as versed in the whole backstory of like, here are the roles everybody plays, right? Hodgman doesn't want to be the villain of the cruise anymore, but the, but the, the cruisers want him to be the villain 
And they the villain how? Because I've never been on one of these. Uh, uh, you know, they, they want a villain. And Hodgman's persona of somebody who's kind of um, crabby, mm-hmm. but also he's a corrector, right? People, right. He walks out on stage and, and says something and the audience goes, Ah, and he says, I do not care about your opinion and I did not invite it. <laughs> and it's like, whoa. And from a from the cruiser's standpoint, um they because the comic book notion is so strong in that group, they were like, Aha, he's the villain. And they started to boo him and hiss him. And it's all in in fun, right? It's a it's their comedy reply. And Hodgman played into it for a while. I am here, you nerds, and I'm, you know, I'm going to set you all straight. Right. And they went, boo, hiss. But after a while, I watched John start to be affected by it. And he's like, you know, it's not fun to be hissed. When you come out on stage to do a show, to do a thing that you've prepared, and the audience hisses, it's no good. I don't like it. Um. Because he didn't want to, because left to its own devices, that would become the only response, right? Hodgman would get up and do some heartfelt program and everybody would hiss because they're trapped in a meme at that point. And they can't, particularly in that, in that environment, it's very hard to break a meme. And I, I mentioned all this only because this idea that I'm selling my things and that those things have a greater value than the market price because of their association with me is an idea that is incons- that is consistent with my persona in certain spheres of the internet as a bragging boorish egotist, uh, which is, you know, which is a very nuanced, you know, I'm not out there playing um, playing that role exclusively, right? I'm not, um, I'm not a, a caricature, but those, but there's a little tinge of that mm-hmm. to how I present myself. And it's part of anytime you create a persona, it's part of shielding yourself from being fully known, at least in my case, right? You put a you put up a few little, <clears throat> a few small pieces of armor, some shoulder pads, some elbow pads in the form of, well, I'm going to be out here already, already uh, with swagger because what I'm afraid of is being out here completely exposed, completely authentic and being called out, yelled at for some thing that is, just primal in me, some innocent thing that I'm, that I'm, that I'm really revealing. And then somebody in the audience is like, Oh, you think you're hot shit. And then I was <laughs> like, I was completely exposed and I now am embarrassed and ruined. Right. And so long, long time ago, I realized, look, there are aspects of your personality that people that are going to, that make you vulnerable to that kind of, um, that, that kind of heckle. And so the antidote to it is not 
to walk out there and go, hello, everyone. I'm so sorry to interrupt right. your conversation, but I am the reason that you came to this show. Although I would never say I was the reason, you know, like just that's, I just hate that when I see it on stage. It just, it appalls me. Mm. Artists that get up with this sort of false, like, I, I know that you all paid $35 to see me, but I hate to interrupt you with my songs, which are, bleh, you know, like, <laughs> fuck your, just fuck you. <laughs> and so not um, wanting to do that and despising it when I saw it, I was like, look, I, if, if somebody's going to yell, you think you're hot shit at me from the crowd, then I'm just going to walk out here with, like pre hot shit. Uh, hot shit about stuff that I have no right to be right. Like I'm not that good of a guitar player. I'm not that good of a singer and I'm not that good of a songwriter. So like what option do I have? I can't walk out there and say, hello everyone. I'm not that good of a guitarist, singer or songwriter. You've been duped, but you've paid your ticket already. I mean, I guess I probably actually have said that. <laughs> But so now I now now the chickens are coming home to roost, right? Because because there was a there was a pastor. I don't know if you if you saw this on the news. I saw it because because it held particular fascination to me. But there was a one of these like rock and roll internet pastors uh, that everyone so despises because they are misogynist and. Uh, generally like creeps, wide stance style bathroom haunters. And this pastor... Wait, what was that term? <laughs> bathroom, bathroom haunters, wide stance style bathroom haunters. What does that mean? Well, I mean, you're just going to have to look up some of the keywords. Oh, man. Uh, he put his clothes on eBay and there was nothing about them that was interesting. There, it was not like, uh, they were a bunch of vintage Filson pieces that happened to be owned by him. They were just his clothes, some golf shirts, some, uh, you know, pleated khakis. And it was, it kind of went small viral in the sense that a group of people passed it around. Like, can you believe this guy? Like what, and I think this happens all the time. People put their clothes online and say like, ready, everyone, here are my clothes. But there's a line where you can't do it anymore, right? Kanye West cannot put his underpants online for sale because it, because at that point it becomes, um, I mean, frankly, if anyone was going to do it, it would be Kanye. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the type of thing that Prince would do. Like, I'm selling my underwear just to, just to see like what would happen just to see the explosion of glitter when people opened their packages, just to see does, is a pair of Prince's purple, uh, like thong underpants. If a Prince banana hammock, is it worth 20 grand or can you get one of those for 200 bucks? If you could get a pair of Prince's underpants for $200, maybe it would be worth it. Right? Maybe Maybe you would get a pair of Prince underpants and frame it and hang it on the wall. I went through a phase 15 years ago when I had a little bit of money and I didn't have any brains where I was looking at Hitler watercolors online. Did I ever tell you about this? I don't think so. There was, there, there is this weird underground of people who like you can buy a watercolor painted by Hitler. They're not 
cheap. They're not giving them away. But when I first started looking 15 years ago, you could get an actual painting by Hitler for what seemed like a, a reasonable amount of money, given that it's Hitler. Yeah. And the and having one as a historical artifact and having one as a as a like uh I guess the only way to describe it would be as a conversation piece. Um like you could tell by the way that they were being sold online and the kind of it's kind of it almost felt a little bit like dark webby. Mm-hmm. It sounds dark webby. Yeah, that the that the 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 initial sense of like I could actually buy a painting by Hitler very quickly when you think about it the the people that make it past that into like I'm genuinely interested in owning this watercolor of a Bavarian pub um by Hitler Painted, and the thing is, we all know Hitler's story, right? So it was painted during his watercolor phase as an art student in Vienna in 1920, and here it is. But to progress through that to, like, I'm going to seriously consider having an artwork by Hitler, it, for me at least, it went from being like, what? I could have a, I could have a piece of Hitler ephemera to, like, oh, my God. That would be, where would you hang? How, where, how could you walk into your house knowing that there was a painting by Hitler in there and not just constantly be living under a, the shadow of a death's head? Yeah, really? You know? There's no, there is no cute or quirky way to say like, oh, do you like my painting? It's by Hitler. Unless you are a very macabre person. You could see someone, some like, um, Anton LaVey type or you know, it's some, like the guy in a, the dad in American beauty who has the plate, the hit, the Hitler plate. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of that stuff out there. A lot of like, this was, this was some piece of silverware that an American serviceman stole from the wolf's lair, mm -hmm. but an actual piece of art by him. I think you would have to have, like you would have to be living in an apartment that had a purple piano, right? Like you would have to be that you would have, you could, it's not a thing that you would hang unless there was also, unless you had a collection that included a clown painting by John Wayne Gacy. Right, right, right. Some, if that was your, that would be your, like your shtick. That's your thing. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you're that person. It's not just a thing that you, but I want to, I want to, I mean, as a, podcaster i want to discourage our listeners from being that person yeah do not unless you're already way way down the <laughs> that uh, road and if you are you already know that you can buy paintings by hitler and i think the <laughs> right you're bored by this conversation because you're already on you know the dark ebay or whatever yeah i, I feel like um <laughs> prices have also gone up you can no longer <laughs> all right there's no longer a sort of entry level hitler painting um like like I'm just getting into this hobby type of thing. Uh, so, so, you know, this pastor was sort of reviled for his, for the, the egotism, the, um, 
just the tone deafness of saying this isn't a situation where a dealer is saying this car used to be owned by Steve McQueen. It's a situation where Steve McQueen is saying this car used to be owned by me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm selling it for double the price. How you like me now? You know, there's a, there's an enormous difference. And, and Steve McQueen's persona would be to stand there and say, you know, Oh, this old car, I gave it to a kid for free because I don't give a shit about things and it certainly doesn't have any additional value because it belonged to me, knowing full well that he's acting a part. Right. And that part, and he's rich enough to be an, uh, to be able to say, like, me, I'm, I ain't nothing. All I did was ruin this car. Here you go, kid. You know, thanks, Mean Joe Green. That's a little bit of a reference for for the the olds, <laughs> very olds. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't. None of that changes the fact that <clears throat> my uh, pursuit of Filson jackets had a very specific sort of. You know, over the years, I have pursued very specific uh, things, and it's because if you go online. There is not a very or any historic archive of what the Filson company made. Mm-hmm. And I'm just talking about this for instance, right? I, this is true of not, not just my Filson pursuits, but like I have a collection of, of Alaska fur rendezvous pins from the 70s to the 90s. And there are people online who are selling them for $4 a piece. And there are people online who are selling them for $400 a piece. Sure. And there's no accepted market value for them because the marketplace is just is just whatever. Somebody's like, I found this in a drawer, four bucks. And somebody else is like, this was given to me by Jay Kurtula, $400. You go, well, I mean, uh, maybe both, maybe halfway in between. But like if you go online and try to date a Filson garment, right. you – think there would be a fan community <clears throat> or that the company itself would maintain an archive such that you could say, oh, well, if it has this button and if it has this stitching, then it is from this period thus to thus. Because you can do that with a lot of, you know, you can do that with <clears throat> a lot of old stuff. There's a meticulous community and the company itself sort of fosters it. But not in the case of Filson stuff. And so I had to teach myself that stuff. And now I am one of the few weird repositories of that information. Like I, I know the four people in the world who know the most about that stuff. And none of them are interested in putting up a website about it. Right. And so it's all this kind of intellectual history that will I almost certainly will matter more somewhere down the line. And it isn't being collected. And, and partly I'm, I really want to tell that story to somebody that cares, Mm -hmm. right? Like I don't want to sell my AC 30 to just some dopey kid who's like, well, that price is less than if I bought it new. Like I want to sell the AC 30 to somebody that realizes that in 1999, it was the last, very last moment that Vox AC 30s were manufactured in England. And even though this is a, a, this is from an era when Vox was owned by Korg. 
it still is a, <clears throat> it's a historic moment, but these were the very last of the best AC 30 top boosts. And so you can get it for less than new, but that's not what's important. What's important is that this is a, this is a cool thing. And, and a few people will recognize that it's cool. And I want to sell it to somebody that cares that it's cool and wants to retain, wants to hear what I have to say about it and wants to retain that information and, and pass it on to the next person. When it's time for them to sell it, they can say, yeah, the ones that were made in 2001, they look the same, but they're not the same. Oh, Did you say, oh? I said, oh, because, because, I mean, this is a subtle, it's a subtle thing. Well, it's very subtle, and this has all been a long way of saying so subtle that I worry that if I put this stuff up on eBay, it's going to get a couple of sport bids by listeners who are like, I want to buy it now. Maybe I can get it for $11. And then it will quickly go into the, the general gyre of people online buying this kind of stuff. And sometimes on Monday, a thing is worth $400 and some, and then the same thing on Tuesday is worth 250 because that's just how eBay goes. And there isn't a dependable or huge market of people who are like, I want to hear that story. I want to get a letter that comes along with this item that tells me everything the seller knows. Um, and, and so I'm back to trying to make several thousand dollars, a, a, a pile of thousands of dollars by selling stuff that, by selling stuff that I can bear to part with. And I think that this is going to be an interesting month, a hard, a hard and interesting month. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to learn a lot. I'm going to learn a lot about what my stuff is worth. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah, you, I think you identified it in that like, it's not going to be worth what you paid for sure. But then you never know. There might be these things, maybe the things that you're the most hesitant to let go of because you do associate them with yourself personally, your bag, that kind of thing. Maybe mm-hmm. other people will recognize that too. I mean, if you just list it on eBay and your account on eBay is like, you know, JR1968 or not, whatever. I then, wish. Then, yeah, it's not going to, but if it's like, you know, if you're like, if it's you selling it, I don't know. That, that never worked for me. Except one time. I had one, there was one thing that I sold years ago. It was an iMac. And somebody said, offered me for it and they asked me to autograph it. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And it's the, the only- Dan Benjamin iMac. It's the only autograph I've ever signed in my life was on an iMac. <laughs> It's the only, <laughs> <laughs> the only person who's ever wanted my autograph also wanted to buy my iMac and wanted it signed. Wow. Um, you know, but I think, I think there's an interest there. I think there's an interest there. And I think there's something cool about somebody that you admire getting something from them and, and, and having it, integrating it into your world, so to speak. I think that's kind of cool. We'll find out. We'll find out. Yeah. 
We would like to thank our sponsor. It is Squarespace, of course. Squarespace, long supporter of this show and the stuff that uh, that we do here, and we sure do appreciate it. Squarespace, make your next move. They've got a brand new campaign they've been working on. They are a domain name registration place now. You may have seen the really funny John Malkovich ads where he goes and registers a domain name. They, they've always had the ability for you to register a domain when you were setting up your Squarespace website. Uh, but now you can just go there and just register a domain. And of course, you, uh, you still can uh, get one when you sign up for your website too, but they've just split it out and they're, they're their own thing now. But if, you, if, if it's possible that you haven't heard what Squarespace is, beautiful award-winning templates that you go in and customize and use to make your own gorgeous, beautiful website. Back in the old days, I used to get paid full-time to build sites that weren't halfway as good as what you can get for a few bucks a month. And it doesn't matter what you want to do there. You want to have set up an e-commerce site and sell stuff and have it automatically calculate the shipping. You can do that. You want to set up a beautiful photo gallery of your work. You're a musician. You want to put your album online. I mean, you name it, you can do it with Squarespace. It's an all-in-one platform. There's nothing to install. You don't have to patch something. You don't have to upgrade it ever. They do it with their award-winning 24-7 customer service there to help you if you ever need help. You can start your free trial today at squarespace.com. And if you use the code ROADWORK, one word, ROADWORK, you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So please do go there and check it out. And you know what? Maybe you do already have your own Squarespace site, but I bet that you know somebody who's starting one. Recommend it to them. Give them that code. It'll support the show, and they will get 10% off their first purchase. Go check it out. Squarespace.com. Code is Roadwork. I, I, I think all of that that I was talking about was that I have enjoyed listeners of these podcasts as they have like communicated to me a kind of comedy um, devotion, right? That when people write me things and say, um, oh, you're helping people mm-hmm. or, you know, when they, when they send me little messages that sound kind of like the members of a, of a cult of personality, um, I always feel like we're in on the same joke and that, yes, absolutely, I am trying to form a cult of personality. Right. Yes, absolutely, I want to be treated <laughs> like the leader of a of a uh, fanatical cult of people who are all keeping a small bag packed or whatever. Like, absolutely, I like that and I want it. But we also are winking and, and we're winking knowledgeably at one another that that is uh, also a joke thing that we're doing. That um, there are plenty of those situations in the world where the cult leader does not have a sense of humor about that, right? that they really do think that they are uh, in possession of special knowledge and that their, that their cult fans also do not have a sense of humor about it and are out there saying, am I a wise man? Am I a great man? No, you know, they're, they're in thrall and even though there are people who are in thrall of me, they are also, I think, largely self-aware that it is right. that, it's, that it's funny to be. Mm-hmm. You know? <clears throat> and I like it too, but it doesn't also change the fact that I, I love it. I like having the, at least the idea of a nascent army of, 
of rabid followers who are who are <clears throat> all Manchurian candidates ready to be activated <laughs> by some <laughs> bat signal. <laughs> fucking love it. <laughs> love it. Yeah. And but I'm but I'm trading in that little space where just between us in within that small group uh it's hilarious and also fun and like yes i am very wise and i do when my voice gets into this timber in your ear it does make you tingle <laughs> but as soon as we take that out into the world a little bit and and one way of doing it is like people wearing a, a t-shirt or or you know, uh, having a Roderick, Roderick sign in their front yard, even right. though they live in Minneapolis. Right, right. But it's all, it also can very quickly get misinterpreted or very quickly, like the, it can go sour. Even just within our community, if there doesn't maintain that kind of small level of self-awareness. I, I, I did an event at the Filson store this past year and a lot of people showed up and I felt like, you know, the premise was I'm going to give this talk about keeping a small backpack. And I didn't keep, I didn't, I didn't, um, do a very good job at the show. And part of the reason was that I was not, I, I was leveraging this show to, get the Filson company to give me a ton of stuff. Like that was my pay for the event. Right. And I was happy to be paid in that stuff because I'm a kook about it. And because it's really expensive stuff, it always feels like if I'm going to get one of these things, I'm either going to get it by doing a thing for them or I won't get it because who can pay $600 for a jacket? But having secured this sponsorship from them, I arrived at the store on that night feeling like an unreflected upon obligation to tout these things that I was being given. And so I had a group of people come and there was, you know, there were sandwiches <laughs> and a cake mm -hmm. and coffee urn. And I laid out a Filson bag with all the things that you would put in it if you were keeping a small bag packed. And I started to give this little like, here's how you keep a small bag packed style speech. But because of this unexamined at the time feeling of obligation, which, I mean, I was being pay paid fairly to get this number of people to come into the store, right? Mm -hmm. That's just, that's, that, it, that was the exchange. But I hadn't really examined that leading up to this moment. And I basically gave a speech that was like, here are Filson things that are great. And the thing about Filson things is that they're, you know, that they will last a long time. And basically I gave like a little Filson. A pitch. You were like a pitch man. Pitch. Yeah. yeah. And about three quarters of the way through, I was like, what am I doing? This is not, I'm not a Filson pitch man. I did, they did not hire me to come sell Filson things. Like I'm leveraging my own self and my, and the people that would come to see me who are expecting, who, who are there because they are, you know, that they are, they're well disposed to me and the things I have to say about the world. 
and I'm just here like giving him a sales pitch on a, on Filson, like I uh, just because because that's because I because I took upon myself the pressure of like, well, they did give me all this free stuff, so and really what I what I needed to say, or and I think I did at some point feel this pressure on me or this felt this moment. And I was like, listen, this stuff is really expensive. It's not stuff that you can, you cannot afford to put this bag together that I've put together here with all this free fills and stuff, because it would cost you $2,500. And that's ridiculous. You should, if you're going to keep a small bag packed, you should, it should be made out of rip stop nylon. And I, I can point you to the ones that you should probably buy. It shouldn't be this one made of canvas and leather because the bag itself weighs 14 pounds. Uh, so I regained a little bit of like dignity, but it was a, it, it was a, a classic moment. And I think it's why a lot of people don't, you know, why Merlin, for instance, who is hyper, hyper aware of this kind of thing, wouldn't, wouldn't take an endorsement probably if somebody said, Hey, you know, Chevrolet, he, he, he wouldn't do it out of a sense of, of that self-preservation of not wanting to lose his his dignity either on purpose or accidentally because that, that out in the world, there are people who will give you, who will find your price and give you the money that it requires for you to lose your dignity. They're just sell your dignity. Right. Filson didn't come anywhere close to that. I just was there and I was excited and I do love the stuff. I think it's pretty and I think it's cool and, and it's made well. But I just caught myself. I'm standing up there like, and another thing. Why this Filson mustache wax, even though I think mustache <laughs> wax is idiotic, if you're going to buy it, this right. Filson stuff is pretty darn mustache waxy. Like, bleh. Uh And, you know, and I'm in that, I'm in that space where I don't, I'm not rich enough to say no to things. Yeah. But again, more money, more problems. I feel like the richer you are, the more. Um, if if Filson if Phil, if Phil, if called you up today and said, listen, we want you to be sort of our like spokesperson for the brand and we're going to pay you for that. And this this salary that you receive means two things. One, you're not going to be able to, to use other if we make an item you can't use another one publicly. So that what that means is if we make a backpack, you can't go and buy like a North Face backpack and wear that around. And if we have like a, like a really good lumberjack style flannel shirt, like, yeah, you might wear your own, but we'd really like it if you would wear ours when you're up on stage performing, please. And we'll pay you. What? And also a couple times a year, five times a year, in fact. We're going to fly you out. All expenses paid. You don't have to pay for anything. You'll get a nice per diem for your food, everything else. But we're just going to have you go out and we're going to have you give the real talk that you should have given about keeping a small bag packed. And, and in, in return for that, we're going to give you X amount per year. Would you, would you do that if it was Filson or if it was uh, your favorite guitar or amp company, for example? Would, would you do something like that? Would you be like a true, like a spokesperson? Well, this has already happened. Um, in, in, a, in a few different instances, I mean, in 2000 and what would it have been? I feel like John, I feel like that you've, if, if that happens or since it has happened, I feel like you can consider yourself having arrived at that point. Well, 
the thing is that it's always there's always a, a caveat, and in, in the case of the in the case of sponsorships, like the Gibson Company, um, started sponsoring me in about 2002, and the whole time throughout the 90s, um, the idea that you would be a musician who got to the point where they had a what was called an endorsement, a Fender endorsement or a Gibson endorsement. It just seemed like, oh man, to to be such a big deal that you got a Gibson endorsement, which to us then meant Gibson gives you free guitars. And Gibson was the Gibson guitars were always the most expensive ones. Yeah. And you're gonna get free, a free Les Paul from them because they think you're that cool. Like yeah. wow. Yeah. And the Posies, not to bring Ken Stringfellow back into it, but I think John Hour of the Posies had a had a Gibson endorsement at one point in the early 90s. But then in 2002, Gibson opened a, a little office in Seattle, and it was suggested that suggested to them that they reach out to me because I was one of the indie rockers at the time, and I forged a relationship with them, and they gave me some Gibson guitars, but not for free. They did Their new plan was like, oh, we don't give free guitars away. We will loan you these guitars for as long as you want them. And it was a weird and unsatisfying exchange for me because I don't want to lease a guitar. I don't want to borrow a guitar, right. you know? I want to own this guitar. And Gibson made it very difficult, in fact, to if, – if they loaned me a guitar and I had it for 10 years and wanted to buy it from them, they didn't have a way to sell it to me uh, because the guitar had a SKU number that didn't allow it to this and that. You know, it was like the, the company is run um, weirdly by the owner. The local Seattle people are amazing. But so anyway, all of a sudden I had this relationship with them where they were doing me these solids. They were giving me effectively free guitars for as long as I wanted them. And, but what it meant was I no longer, I no longer thought to myself, maybe I should play a Telecaster on this song mm -hmm. because it was not a Gibson brand. And over the years, Gibson did me a lot of great favors. I did break a couple of guitars on tour. Gibson took them back with no comment. Um, when I went overseas, they would ship guitars to me in Spain and in England, and I would arrive in those places, and there would be guitars waiting for me. And then when cool. it was time, it was great. And then when it was time to fly home, I took those guitars to some address and handed them to somebody, and then they went away. I didn't have to think about them again. Like there were a lot of wonderful things that they did, but I also it's another one of these things where at the end of the day, I didn't have any guitars that I, I don't, I didn't get any guitars there that I'm able to sell now to pay my tax bill. You know, it was just a kind of like, now I don't use Telecasters and I do use these Gibsons and I feel somewhat obligated to be photographed with them and talk about them. Mm -hmm. Was that a fair exchange? Did I, you know, there's, there wasn't a way to, there wasn't a way to leverage that into, pay. And there were a lot of people more famous than me who were also very excited just to get loaned free guitars by this company that we all admired. Um, and then in 2010, a friend of mine that works at REI 
said, I want you to come. We're doing a little web series. I want you to come down and you can just answer viewer mail by we'll make little videos and people will say, what's the best kind of crampon to use on your mountain climbing boots when you are climbing up an ice field? And then we'll go out into the REI uh, warehouse. We'll find the thing that we think is best. And then you can say, good question. Here's the, here is the, um, the crampon that I would choose. And it was a, it was a funny thing and it was trading just slightly up. Most REI customers do not, are not long winters fans just by the law of averages. <laughs> but it was REI's, it was like a, a novel approach. Like what if we had a pitch man? What if the pitch man was like a Northwest guy that, that uh, knows about these things and also has a little bit of rock and roll. And so this was a little uh, thing that, that happened momentarily. But what REI figured out was uh, someone who is on REI, I mean, REI uh, customers tend to be fairly earnest and what they really wanted was someone in a green REI vest who said, I'm the world expert on crampons, and here's the one that I would choose. <laughs> they did not want like an indie rocker who was like, you know what I would choose? I would choose to get off that ice field and get down into the lodge and have some <laughs> sexy times. Like that that's not REI, it's not on brand for them. <laughs> But, yes. <laughs> but it was intriguing to me, like, oh, maybe I'll be a, you know, like I'm, I, I'm certainly not opposed to being a pitch man, but, but my value, like if, if it's just, like, there are a couple of, of friends that I have who have gone into the pitch man world, like Nick Thune, the comedian, who's a Seattle guy and a lovely guy. Uh, also a very handsome guy, mm. became the pitch man for Honda, I think. He just auditioned and lucked into this job where Honda said, you know what, we need a tall, handsome hipster guy with a bushy beard who's got an ironical um, sort of slow roll kind of vibe. <laughs> and he's going to be our, um, can you hear me now? Oh, pitch right they're not saying comedian nick thune drives hondas he's just a kind of faceless um not faceless he is the face of this without it being connected to his comedy necessarily and um mark evan jackson of uh thrilling adventure hour has recently started appearing in I think progressive insurance ads. Um, again, as a kind of, he's not, he's not himself. He is, he's a persona sort of, sort of the way Hodgman was in, um, in the Apple ads mm -hmm. and watching them and being like, well, that seems like, that seems like fun. And, and knowing that, knowing how profoundly Hodgman's life was changed by being an Apple pitchman. Like, absolutely. I would audition for that kind of work, but, but the, the, the trouble I have is in these small scale situations where what the company is trying to do is make, make that 
connection to me specifically in order to leverage my fans, you know, to not to use, not to use my beautiful face and, and, uh, and dulcet voice to attract the mass, but rather to like grab a hold of my small group and comb them and suck the precious bodily fluids out of them for whatever they're worth <laughs> and then move on, yeah. you know, like, and that's not a thing I want to exploit. I don't want to take my people. Like I felt like I did at that Filson thing, take my people and our agreement and our self aware kind of fun that we all have together. And then, um, and then exploit that in a way that isn't where the joke isn't clear for a moment where I'm like, okay, right. This whole cult thing. Okay. Anyway, here's this product that I'm pushing, you know, like here's this Amway or whatever, like that was, that's a, that's a line I never want to cross. And, um, and yet, you know, you try to make money and try to leverage yourself to, in order to do it. It's, 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 as you can tell, I've, I've, I've agonized over it and continue to way, way more than, than it's actually worth, right? What am, what am I talking about? You know, I want to get, I want to get people to give uh, $10 a month to some imaginary Patreon that I've never put up. And I'm so worried about it. I'm so worried about what, how that's going to read and what they're going to, how they're going to feel that I, that I spend four years not putting up a, not even putting a PayPal button on my website because I'm just not sure that I want to, um, I want to have that vibe in the room. I mean, it's, it's overthought and it's overthinking a thing that is kind of just a small, a small, uh, even a dignity mm-hmm. on the Joko cruise. We did a podcasting panel panel with, um, with uh, one of the McElroys and Janet Varney and Rishi Hirway and um, it was really interesting. There was a l- large, large crowd there. And at one point someone asked, um, how many of you in the audience support podcasts directly? Mm. Uh, with Like a direct you know, donation. With contributions. Of right. Stuff. And almost every hand in the room went up. Mm, very interesting. Um, I think Jeffrey Craner was there too from Night Vale. And we were all astonished. Mm-hmm. We all looked at each other and we're like, what, seriously? And obviously this is, a, this is a nerd cruise and these are the people that if anyone in the world is going to support um, support culture and content directly. It's going to be from this group. Right. But still it was a, it was a startling number of hands shooting up into the air. Like, like a big crowd of people like, yes, we all would rather pay to see the thing that we love happen than a not see it happen or B see it drug down into the mud by advertising or, you know, whatever it was just like, whatever it takes to get the things that we love made. And, uh, I think every person on that podcast panel 
walked off that stage at the end kind of slowly thinking to themselves, can that be true? That just doesn't seem we're we like very few of the people on the stage had a mechanism for fans to contribute. You know, everybody on the stage was sitting and thinking about models of how do you, you know, how do you make income or how do you make enough money to support this, these projects? I mean, I don't think, I don't think anybody up there had a Patreon or whatever. Well, here's the, here's the thing. I think that's, this is the case for a long time. And this is something I have spent a whole lot of time thinking about and that it is not easy, especially for people like podcasters to use this kind of mechanism. And like, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not sure, but in, in being full time podcasting all in since basically 2000, 2009 officially, you know, I made a hundred percent of my living podcasting and that all comes through selling like sponsorships. And so when I, when I started working on fireside, a part of the reason that I did that is because I wanted to build something that like I had built five by five, five, the content management system that powers it that powered all of our shows and all that time. And I had realized, man, I've really built something that's pretty cool. And wouldn't it be neat if other people could use it? And yeah, you know what? I've like, my background is in software development and IT and all that. And I know how to build stuff. I should really rebuild this as something that other people could, can use but it, behind the scenes on that, I'm thinking the way sponsorships are going in podcasting, the only people that are really making making money at, in a sustainable way, in a way of like, I can make a living doing this, are the people who probably don't need to make a living doing it. People who are coming into it with from because they're in Hollywood or they're in movies and TV or they're, you know, big time musicians or they're wwe wrestlers or whatever you know what i mean like people who are coming to it with a huge following millions of followers already media figures people who are really big in in whatever space they're in and they say oh you know what i'm going to do a podcast too and when they sell an ad it's oh it's ten thousand dollars for an ad on their on their show you know Mm -hmm. or companies who are coming from um public radio saying Collectively, we have 50 years of public radio experience in this room. Let's go and do some shows that are incredibly highly produced and we're going to get some funding to do it and we're going to make, you know, a really, really great show. Whether that's sustainable or not, we don't really know. But I mean, I think I think there's people who are all in on that. But I don't believe that sponsorships are the are are the future of podcasts. I think they'll be part of it. But I think the big future is what you're talking about right here, which is being able to to have a direct relationship with your audience and say do do you like what we're doing here if you like it you need to support it because that's the only way we can we can make a living now or if this is a big part of what we do for a living like this is it and so much of the time like i we like i have patreon for different things that i do and typically it there's a very you i know some people who are doing really really well on patreon who are making, you know, a, a six-figure salary for doing their show. One one person in particular uh, does probably six figures a year. I know he distributes that out to the co-hosts that he has. He has a number of different co-hosts through the week. So it's he's not keeping all of that. But 
you know, and he's using something like Patreon for that. But I don't think that's the the way it's going to work because the idea of like sending someone to this other place and say, well, you, you, I know you're listening to our show like in your podcast app on your phone, right? But you need to go to some other place and then you need to make an account there and then you need to, that's all. I mean, it's, it's good that we have it and don't get me wrong. Like we, I like Patreon. I think it's great. But one of the things I wanted to like build into Fireside was member support. And like, that's something I've been working on for a while and we're, I'm going to come out with it really soon. But like, that's to me is the future is like those people up on your panel should all say, Oh, right. Of course. Like, of course we get donations. We don't have to think of how to do that and how to market that and how to put it out there and how to connect it with our podcast and how to make it easy so that people can like use their phones and hit Apple pay. And like now they're donating to their favorite show for four or five bucks a month. Like that can just happen in a seamless, easy way to me as like the software guy building a platform for podcasts. Like this is something that I am very passionate about. I think about all the time because like, to me that sucks. Like, you have a, a room full of people. Of course, those are the people that are donating to it because they're on the cruise. You know what I mean? Like those are the people who are, they are there because they love this kind of stuff. But there's a lot of people who love this kind of thing that the idea of like, well, I'm going to go make an account somewhere and sign up for a thing. And like, that's just too much trouble. It's just too much trouble. You know well, what I mean? But I, but I feel like the, you know, the, the resistance and the only resistance that I've ever felt, but it's a it's strong resistance is just that we all came up in the things should be free era. And, you know, I watched my music go from being a thing that people would reliably pay $17.99 right, for, right. to a thing that people scoffed at paying 99 cents for. Right. And, the, you know, we are not, I think if you're, if you're 21 years old and you're just starting out, you can start out with any kind of model. Mm -hmm. You can, you can go online with your first thing and say, here's my model. I want to be paid in walnuts. Right. Um, but to be an established maker of things and be out there kind of visibly, flailing and experimenting and saying, well, now I'm going to have a Patreon and now I'm going to, you know, everyone buy a t-shirt. Mm -hmm. It just, there's an unseemliness to the, uh, in a way, the lack of confidence. Right. Right. Um, my friend, John Vanderslice in the two, the mid two thousands really didn't want to be on the wrong side of history. Uh, when it came to, the question of whether or not art should be free or whether or not musicians should, how musicians and artists should make a living. And so he tried a lot of things and he very definitely went through a public phase where he was like, steal my record. I'll make money, you know, steal my record and then give me uh, money if you like it or steal my record and buy the t-shirt. And he you know, he, he understood that we were in an exploratory space and he wanted to be, um, correct. But I think in the end, none of those things felt satisfying and none of us, I mean, I still hear from people that I still hear it and I almost cry 
when I hear it, that people say things like, well, don't musicians make most of their money off of T-shirts anyway? Like I hear that. I hear people say it mm. as though it's true because they read it in a magazine article once or because somebody said, you know, well, you'll make it back up in T-shirt sales. I mean, do you have any idea how much musicians make in T-shirts? Not enough. Like <laughs> T-shirts are expensive to make. Do you buy a T-shirt every time you go to see a show? No. Do you buy a T? Do you have T-shirts of? I mean, most people don't wear band T-shirts. Like the idea that that is a uh, that that is a, a a source of income for musicians who devote their whole lives to playing music is ludicrous. If you have ever said it or ever thought it. Erase it from your mind. T-shirts are not the business we're in. And, and yet there was, there were years there where if you said, and I think those years are still true. If you say like, listen, my record costs $15 because it's, because it costs a lot of money to make and it costs a lot of money to pay the band and you wouldn't sell a single record. Yeah. Everybody would, you know, even though people spend $15 to go to the movies, you know, they go to the, they buy a movie ticket. Now it's 13 bucks in Seattle. And then you buy a, a thing of popcorn and a pop and it's another, you know, it's $35 to go see Avengers. Right. And people do it without blinking an eye. But but to spend $15 on a record that you'll listen to maybe for 15 years, you know, or the rest of your life. <laughs> right. And yeah. And you introduce your children to. You know, $15. Oh, my God. Who are these maniacs? We just we lost that battle a long time ago. The musicians did not. The technology overtook the music industry in a way that we will always now because Hollywood defended the barricades. You don't get to just go get a movie for free. Uh, but the music industry was too slow and didn't manage to get in front of the technology or maybe couldn't ever have gotten in front of the technology. And we made a, a bad moral case. And a lot of people in the mid two thousands who worked in the record business were like, huh, Maybe people should get our music for free and we'll make it back in t-shirts. Like nobody, there was not an, an eloquent and unified front and that, and it's just the ship has sailed. So for me to say now, having watched the value of the, of the primary art that I make, just, just go into the sand to feel like, Oh, these podcasts that I do where I talk to my friend for an hour extemporaneously about whatever uh, it's hard for me to feel like that has value. I mean, it really undermined my sense of the value of, um, I mean, we all know what the value of sitting and coding is because it makes people into millionaires. Um, but the value of spending a lifetime learning how to sing and play guitar and write songs and make, make things of beauty or to be, well-educated and, and articulate, like those things, uh, those things have no value. If you go to a university campus right now and you look at the money that they spend maintaining the facilities for the uh, liberal arts departments, like how much money they spend building nice rooms for the history and English departments versus the amount of money university campuses put into their science labs and the brand new buildings that they're building for their computer science people and their engineering departments. It's just ludicrous. The yeah. whole reason that university is there is because there it was built to house a history department. And now the history department has, you know, the, the lights don't work in those buildings anymore. 
but they are tearing down the engineering building that they built in 2001 to build a new one. And they tore it down. They built a new one in 2001 and tore down the one that they built in 1994. Like they're just, there's so much money there and that's what's considered of an education now. Nobody studies history except for, I don't know, sad people. <laughs> and so in my whole, everything that I'm interested in in my whole culture has just suffered two decades of, of repeated devaluation um, in, the, in the market and in the world. Uh, there just isn't a case you can make anymore. And all of the people that are making that, that straight out of college start at $90,000 a year working as a code monkey somewhere, they all feel that that's, uh, that's valid pay for their four years of suffering, learning to computer program or for all the years that they sat in their basement, um, playing mist. But like there isn't, there's no, no one sheds a single tear for the person that spent those same years learning how to read and make art. And that's, I guess, li living in a capitalist economy, uh, you just watch, um, you watch like beauty marginalized and you watch um, reflection marginalized until those things appear to have no value other than like um, ephemeral value. Like, oh, well, I could, you know, I could go to the novelty store and buy like bobblehead dolls or I could listen to an album that someone put 11 years of blood, sweat, and tears into. Yeah. They cost about the same. Um, I know that there are lots of people that don't feel that way that still love beautiful things, but it isn't this isn't the era of beautiful things. This is the era of crude functionality. And anyway, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to go. I mean, this is the thing that, that Merlin objects to and it, it's why he has never allowed us to, um, he doesn't want to feel like he's standing there with his hat in his hand, mm -hmm. asking passersby to throw a coin in. Bro, see, and, I don't, I don't think that that's, First of all, I know that I don't feel that way when people who are doing work that I really like um, ask ask for support. I don't feel like that when I do it um, at, at all. Hmm. I feel like I have a direct relationship with the person, and then then and to to quote Adam Curry on No Agenda that, that that's a value for value proposition that we're doing something or the person that is receiving the. Uh, the 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 support is doing something that other people value, and well, we we want I, that person to continue. We want that person to to have the financial means to continue to do that thing that brings us joy, and that it is our privilege to be able to support that person in doing what they do. And if that means that that person can continue to do it, and maybe go beyond that, and maybe they can um, re replace the carpet in their house because the well, Dan, the dog Dan, threw I'm up on it. I'm going to let you finish, Yeah, but I don't, you know, you don't need to pitch it to me. I mean, I think everybody, uh, I understand the logic of it and I think everybody listening does too. It's just that the, uh, and maybe it is that the, um, resistance to it is illogical. Mm. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of people who, who have written to it's me. It's emotional. Over, yes, it is. Well, it's a very emotional. There's a lot of people who've written to me over the years saying, I skipped through all your sponsor reads. I don't ever want to hear about Squarespace ever again because oh, I, have, sure. I have a Squarespace site. I don't need another one. I signed sure. up with your code five years ago. Please stop talking about it. But yeah, nobody I, likes advertisements either, but it, but it is an established advertisement is an established thing that if you want to say, why do you have ads? Um, everybody can point to Mad Men or <laughs> to the history of advertising and say, this is a way that people make money at things. Um, you but, know, you see, but you see Patreon or some kind of donation system, it gives people a way to perhaps not feel because I've had a lot of people say. And early on, before I was doing any kind of like support stuff for any of the shows or anything, I had a lot of people say, give, give me a way to support you directly because I'm not listening to your ads. I'm not going to listen well, to your ads. So give, yeah, give me a way to help you do the thing you do. We have, we have two models of it. One of them is the Wikipedia model where they go on uh, with these big, like these big splash pages I don't know what splash page is, but you go <laughs> to Wikipedia to see, um, you know, to read about the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, as you do. And there's a thing, thank you for supporting Wikipedia and please, your donation helps and all this. And then there's the Google model where you just go on there and you use the thing. And there are all these ads flashing around that you ignore. Um, but I don't think anyone prefers the Wikipedia model, the, the Max FunCon NPR model mm-hmm. of like, here we are basically like not just an advertisement, but like a, a special pleading that we're doing for your donation. Cause I think that's what ends up happening, right? You mm-hmm. don't just, you don't just put a, you don't just put a uh, Patreon button up there and then never refer to it again. You put a Patreon button up there and then you say every time, remember to support our thing. It's a, um, what do you do? Are you making lunch or something? Oh, I have to go. uh, (laughs) You're just packing up. (laughs) Yeah. I'm packing up. Yeah. And then my, uh, my, uh, microphone came unplugged. (laughs) So now I'm actually podcasting to you. Uh, just through the speaker in the computer. It's not that bad, you know? It's not that bad. <laughs> I've been told never, ever, ever to do. <laughs> Look at this. It's okay. I mean, well, you know, if I if I had known, I would have done a little a special filter or something. But Oh, Marco Arment is going to be so mad. I know. He's going to give this podcast a 0.0. <laughs> he, does, he does listen, I found out. He liked our watch discussion. I'm, uh, I'm sitting here right now, Marco. Talking into the the built-in microphone of a laptop. Well, we can we can all hear the difference. Unfortunately, I might all go. I might go to the bathroom right now. Who who can stop oh, me, John? All right. Well, listen. We usually end the show right after you make some kind of really uh, subtle, important comment. Do you have one so we can end it properly, or should I just play the music? Um, I think that in this case. Uh, you should just play the music. 